The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Support for this show is brought to you by Tarcher Peregrine, publisher of Life Lessons, the new book of affirmations by Julia Cameron best-selling author of The Artist's Way. Buy life lessons wherever books are sold. From Spirituality and Health magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Joanne Cacciatore. She's the author of Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. Dr. Kachatori is an ordained Zen priest. She's affiliated with Zen Garland and its Child Bereavement Center outside of New York City. Her work has been featured in major media sources such as People Magazine, Newsweek, New York Times, Boston Globe, CNN, National Public Radio, and the LA Times, Los Angeles Times. And a review of Bearing the Unbearable appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Joanne Cacciatore, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. I want to start out, sort of, you can lay out the, the the heartbreak at the heart of this book. I mean, you come to your understanding of grief from the inside out. So tell us about about baby Cheyenne and her passing. Well, it was 1994. Uh, She was my fourth child, and she died uh, during childbirth um, for unexplained reasons. Everything was perfectly fine, and she just died. She was eight pounds. They couldn't find a cause of death. Um, And it and it tumbled me into a really, really dark place um, with very little sort of societal support or societal infrastructure around traumatic grief. Um, and I didn't know if I would make it. I lost a lot of weight, a dramatic amount of weight. I think I weighed less than 90 pounds in three months. Uh, I was having difficulty eating, sleeping, and functioning in a world full of platitudes like uh, God needed an angel to tend his garden and everything happens for a reason and just choose happiness and healing. And, um, wow, the list can go on and on. Um, she's, you know, she's in a better place and, you know, you'll be with her again. You have other children. At least it wasn't one of the older children. I mean, (laughs) there was no shortage of, of platitudes that really, um, can, continuously injured me emotionally and psychologically. Uh, And so I withdrew and uh, wasn't doing very well. And uh, eventually 
clawed uh, a little a little bit a little way out of the hole um, the abyss I call it through kindness basically I I started noticing that I was less preoccupied with the superficialities and the mundanities of day-to-day life. And it felt like my heart had shattered into a million pieces into the world because all of a sudden I started noticing suffering around me. And I was young. This is, you know, 1994. I I was 20, I think 25 or 27 years old, somewhere in there. And so I was young and I, I had never really thought about, about, suffering in the broad context. I I thought about suffering prior to that of animals. I was on the first Save the Whales campaign many years ago. I haven't eaten an animal since 1972, since I was seven years old. So, I mean, I, I thought about animal suffering, but I never really thought about sort of this broad suffering that comes from trauma and grief in humans. And so I started seeing you know, people who didn't have homes on the street and other people who had lost children or other people they loved and people who just looked sad. And I saw it all around me and I just felt really vulnerable myself and also connected to these people who were hurting. And I thought, oh, what is going on? You know, I mean, I didn't really understand it, but I knew that something in me was transforming. I knew that something was shifting and I knew that it was coming from this deep abyss of pain, this wellspring of agony that, that lived inside me. And I thought, what, what can I, what can this, what is this going to become at some point? This is going to become something. And I didn't know what it was going to become, but I knew that it would become something. I knew that I was being agonizingly transformed. And so that, of course that, that doesn't happen overnight. Um, it was a, it was a, it wasn't a radically um, expeditious process, but it did happen, and um, I could see it happening in me. I could feel the shift in me in awareness. So, really, her death leveled me. I mean, just leveled me. It. I was. I had nothing left inside me. I was a shell of a human being on the outside, just grasping for any reason to wake up in the morning despite so, the fact so, that i had other children yeah Joanne, I, I, because I, I don't want to lose this um notion to go back to the beginning here this notion of the platitudes that that people were i mean they say them to you but they're really simply ways of avoiding having to see the suffering that you're going through and see suffering in general they're, they're doing it they hide behind these platitudes. God needed an right. angel. I mean, I, I, I would just want to shoot these people, but <laughs> I'm not very compassionate. So, I, but I, I do want you to speak just briefly because a lot of people, well, okay, so what do I say? If I can't rely on these hallmark sayings and these, these silly platitudes, if they're causing more pain and that's not my intention. Right. Do you have any idea what people could say or, or should they say anything? Yeah, no, it's a great question that I'm, that I'm asked quite a bit in my teaching. And, and what I say is that what you do, how you show up for people speaks enough. I mean, really, what do you say in the face of such tragedy for people? I mean, there, there aren't words that can comfort. There aren't words that are, that are solace for most people. 
most of the time when people use those kinds of kind of trite platitudes, they're doing it because they're very uncomfortable. Look, we live in a culture where we don't, we don't know how to talk about death. We certainly don't know how to talk about grief. Grief is even harder. Um, and I talk about that in the book, like the happiness cult of our culture, you know, where we're just, we want everybody to be happy all the time. And so when someone is suffering and someone is crying and someone is in deep pain, because we don't know how to stay with it and just really fully inhabit that space with them, we tend to try to abbreviate their pain. We hand them a Kleenex, right? We hand them a Kleenex. What's the inherent message when we hand someone a Kleenex? Wipe away your tears. Now, I'm not saying don't hand someone a Kleenex, but I'm saying be aware of the impulse to fix or cure that which is not fixable or curable. That's generally what I tell people is just show up, be willing to fully inhabit their grief without trying to take it away. Yeah. All all I was going to say is my my experience is is that people aren't trying to fix your grief. They're trying to just shut you up. that's what I, I think they just don't want to hear it. It's too, it's too uncomfortable. It's too frightening. So they just, it, oh, it let me say something. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, you, it is frightening. You're right. And I, and I write about that in the book too, right? With mortality salience about Ernest right. Becker, you know, and how the terror underneath, you know, that underlies everything causes us to fear, you know, death so much, our mortality so much that we use anything we can to avoid it. Were you a Buddhist when this happened? No. So you came to Zen afterwards? Yes, I came to Zen in 2007 originally, um, found my own Zazen practice, and then started studying. So what's the attraction of Zen? Because Zen, I mean, Buddhism itself deals with suffering and the ending, you know, the ending of suffering. So is there a connection there for you? Well, I th- my so my understanding of Buddhism is, in terms of suffering is is that there is that being alive is suffering. I mean, it's inevitable. But the suffering that we create by trying to avoid our emotions is the silly suffering. Mm. Right? It's the that's just being alive inherently causes us to suffer. You know, we age our cell uh, at a cellular level. When we're born, we're born dying. Our, our cells are dying, you know? And so, you know, our bodies break down. Our, we're, we, you know, we start to get dementia at some a, at a certain age, people we love die and we're going to grieve. We're going to feel pain and disappointment and people break up and, you know, all of this heartache that, that that's inevitable. But, the suffering that comes from running from our suffering, that's the suffering that we create ourselves. And that's completely unnecessary. We don't have to run from our emotions. Human beings are resilient. We have within us the capacity to bear the unbearable. That's the irony of the book, the title, right? Bearing the Unbearable. Sounds like a paradox, but it's not. And of course, it's Zen, right? Zen is about the paradox, right? So okay, so so th- this this makes I mean it makes sense to me. I've spent ten years in the in the Zen world, and I'm attracted to paradox. I'm attracted to everything that you're you're saying, both philosophically and and practically. And one of the things I loved about the book, I mean, it's sort of a no holds barred, right? I mean, it's just sort of this bare bones look at the reality of suffering through, you know, yes. through love and loss. And at the end of the book, you've got this section called What I Know. And yeah. 
I found that really intriguing. And if it's okay with you, what I'd like to do is to spend some time and maybe the rest of the, the time we have together going through just a few of these. I mean, not all of them, but you, sure. and, and people will, will hear what I'm talking about when I, when I feed them to you. But you, you just don't fool around. There's no sugarcoating. There's no attempt to make it sound nice. There's no attempt to feed us the platitudes that you were fed and just, you know, pass them yeah. on to us. So let, let's yeah. go into that if you like. So I think that's going to help people really grasp what I know probably grasp is the wrong word from a Zen perspective, but no clinging. But here anyway, the things that, that you know. So let's start with the with this one. I know that life promises us nothing. So what, yeah. what, how do you understand that? Yeah, well, so, you know, I was really naive, as many of us are, if we haven't been touched by the death of someone we love very much, especially an out-of-time death, a death that surprises us. We all expect that when our grandparents are in their 70s or 80s or 90s that we're going to lose them, but when we, lose, when we lose our, you know, 40-year-old partner or our, you know, you know 55-year-old parent or, um, your, or our child, um, those are anachronistic. Those are out of time, out of order, and that's exceedingly painful and very hard for us to to understand. And so, this idea that life promises us nothing is about you know the, the vulnerability that's inherent in being alive for all of us. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, when I I have four surviving children, and every time I see them, I when I say goodbye. Every time in my in my mind, in my heart, I think to myself, what if this is the last goodbye? Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And, and it makes me want to cry every time, but it makes that last hug or that last kiss really good, really I savor that with them because I can't keep them holed up in a room. I have to let them go. And I know that we're vulnerable. There are no guarantees. Uh, and so that's the beauty and the terror that underlie everything. And that's what I mean when I say life promises nothing. Yeah, I think a lot of people think the opposite. That, oh, no, it, it promises me happiness and joy and peace. And if I don't have it, it's yeah. because I'm not, oh, I'm not doing the right thing or somehow God is angry with me. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I, I love the way you phrase it. If, if I were to rewrite the book for myself, I would have said, I know that life promises us nothing and gives us everything, meaning what, you know, in Taoism, we call the, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of just being alive. Right. And when, right, exactly. My sense is, and I'm asking for your comment on this, that when we realize life promises us nothing, everything we get, whether it's positive or negative, because that's just our opinion on it, but everything that we get 
becomes more precious, in, in, not in that negative way, but but more wondrous, more engaging, because yeah. it's just, it's yeah. all grace in a sense. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... This is this is what one of the really interesting things about the work I do because this is what I've done for 20 years all day every day this is it all day every day and so people often expect me to be sort of this sour you know, very macabre person you know lifeless you know really sort of depressive and I'm not at all I'm really vibrant and very alive and very passionate and you know, I love life with a ferocity and, and I cry almost probably at least every three days. I have a good cry, whether it's for my own stuff or for other people's stuff or sometimes the world or animals or whatever. I, I'm not afraid to cry and, and having access to that 10,000 sorrows gives you a deeper appreciation and access to the 10,000 joys. I think we cut ourselves off and we fragment and then we, we become partial, partial versions of ourselves rather than whole authentic selves. If that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And you write in the book, and this is a a brief quote says you, you wrote when we live our grief, honestly, it has the mysterious power to deepen the meaning of our lives. And that's really what you're talking about. Yeah. Most of us, I would yeah. imagine, don't live grief honestly. When people come to you, is it because because of that issue they don't know how to live their grief? I you know, I think I think yes and there's a caveat to that. The caveat is that they've bought into the bullshit. Oops, can I say bullshit? Sure. You've said it twice. <laughs> <laughs> they bought into the to the nonsense that our culture is selling about grief. They bought into this notion that you you know you have a, a certain time period to grieve, and this is what it should look like. This is what's socially acceptable, and these are the things you're allowed to to say and feel and express, and this is the way you're allowed to express it. And 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 I think that it rails against everything inside of them and they start to really, really disintegrate as a human being. And then then you get the distraction. So they're trying to meet the standards of our weird wonky culture about grief. Um, And by doing so, you know, it's like, oh, I'm really sad today. I miss my three, in one case, three children who died in a fire. Well, oh, let's go to a movie. Let's not think about it. Let's go, let's go have a glass of wine. You know, and, and those are, those are people attempting to make someone feel better or to help in some way or to do something to alleviate someone's pain. But the reality is then we get into these habitual patterns where we're using drugs or alcohol or porn or gambling or eating, you know, or work or exercise or spiritual practice to avoid being with our emotions, being with what's real right now in the here, in the now. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I think part of it is what Neil Postman called amusing ourselves to death. And we're just trying to avoid reality. But also it's fed to us every I mean, who knows if people watch the nightly news anymore. But when you when you watch the the network news, ABC, CBS, NBC, the, the half hour shows, they just cut from one thing to the next. And you get these tragedies where there's a fire and the whole family was destroyed in the fire. And we'll be right back after this. Right. So right, right. It just, 
you shift from a horror of this fire to now you're going to go buy either some medication that they're selling or some, you know, new, new outfit that they're selling, whatever, whatever it happens to be. Tragedy is used to sell product. And it's that's right. It, it makes it very that's difficult right. to us in, in our culture to, to deal with that. Yeah. So let me let me pick on what you yeah. just said, because we're really up against the clock here. But you, you wrote also in, in your, you know, what, you know, section. I know that no drink, no pill, no religion and no book can save me from suffering. You've already mentioned drink and pill, but you know, lots of people and maybe lots of people who are listening are convinced that there is a religion or there is a book that or a yoga practice or something <laughs> right. that can save me from right. suffering. And you're saying, yeah. no, there is no escape from suffering. Yeah, you know, Psalms, um, there's, a, there's a, chapter, a chapter in Psalms that says God is nearest those who are brokenhearted. And when I'm working with people who are very, um, you know, biblically centered, I remind them of that. God is nearest those who are brokenhearted. What I tell people is spirituality is a way into suffering, not a way out of suffering, right? I mean, as we deepen, as we deepen our awareness of self and other, as we deepen our awareness of oneness and suffering and pain and grief, we're going to feel more pain, and that's what spirituality is. And it's not that we can't bear it, but we have to practice bearing it. We have to go there by choice with intention. We have to, what Rumi says, the healing from the pain is in the pain. We have to willingly turn toward it and practice being with it or nothing gets transformed. We don't, we don't go through that alchemical transformation into a spiritual, truly spiritual being by avoiding the pain we feel inside. Right. We tend to use spirituality and religion as sort of a, well, it's a drug. You know, it's happy, happy, joy, joy. And the reality is is what you're really laying out here. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, but that's a, a good place to leave it, to, that you can bear the unbearable if you, if you're, I guess, what, willing? If you're opening yourself up well, to it, you, you discover you have the capacity to bear it. Yeah, I think I think it's it if we practice and if we have the right social support, I think others matter, and that's another thing I talk about a, a lot in the book is we have to change the culture of grieving. We have to. Mm. Well, we're going to have to leave it there and invite people to go read the book "Bearing the Unbearable." Our guest today was Joanne Cacciatore, whose new book "Bearing the Unbearable: Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief" is reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Joanne's work on her website, MissFoundation.org. Is there any other place they can find you? Yeah, JoanneCacciatore.com. Ah, okay, right, right. I, I didn't find that. I found, uh, are you still at the Miss Foundation? Are you? Yes, I am. Yeah, and then there's uh, ZenGarland.org. This is all places where Joanne is involved. So thank you very much for speaking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Support for Essential Conversations is brought to you by Tarcher Peregrine, publisher of Life Lessons, the new book of affirmations by Julia Cameron, the best-selling author of The Artist's Way. You can buy Life Lessons wherever books are sold.
Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.